Professor Ian Stewart, you are a senior academic with the University of Warwick and you're writing books about a science fiction fantasy. Why on earth have you done that? Because it's a very good vehicle for popular science writing. It's a way to explain in what is visibly non-threatening, because if you've got Terry Pratchett's Discworld all over the place, this can't be uh, sort of esoteric, high-level ivory tower stuff. Um, it's it, it, the, Anyone reading the book will see from the beginning that whatever it's going to be, it's not going to be very, very solemn and serious and um, technical. It just it, There's no way you could do that. And also because uh, I and Jack Cohen, who's one of the other authors got to know Terry Pratchett long ago and the three of us get on very well and it seemed a lot of fun to write something together. So were you not frightened that people wouldn't take you seriously, that all of a sudden you would stop being the serious scientist you were serious before that? I've always been... I, I, I've been too stupid to worry about not being taken seriously as a, as a mathematician. Um, it really doesn't bother me, but I think it doesn't bother me because experience shows it doesn't happen. There may be a few people in the mathematical community or the academic community who will uh, frown somewhat at this sort of frivolous activities, but these days it's much, much more acceptable for academics to go out and tell the world what they're doing. And if you're going to tell the world what you're doing, you can't do it in technical language. It means you've got to simplify it. You've something you, you you've got to tell white lies if necessary. You just cannot tell the whole truth. Um, Otherwise, you get back to writing the technical paper. So it's much more acceptable activity. In fact, it's my job at Warwick anyway. So if anyone complains, I can say, but that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Do you think people are threatened by science and by mathematics? I've found over the years that people seem less threatened by science and mathematics than they used to. Um, you do still get the occasional, I was never any good at maths when I was at school, answer to any reference to mathematics but much more often nowadays if you mention that you're a mathematician people immediately cluster around and say what do you think about chaos theory what do you think about fractals um you know uh, do, do, do you think that computers will ever be intelligent and they start asking questions on that level so they're engaged with maths and science so i'm fairly optimistic on that front i i think the the, the public in general are um, have a fairly sensible attitude to science and mathematics, but they're not specialists. They don't know the background. They need to be reminded of things, but they're, they're intelligent enough about it. What sort of things do you cover in your books? The Science of Disworld books cover just about the whole of science. Um, the, the first book, which is called The Science of Disworld, and that was it, um, basically covers the origins of the universe, the origins of the solar system, the um, general earth sciences structure of the planet that we live on, um, the origins of life, the evolution of life from bacteria up to chimpanzees, and then it fast forwards to a point at which whatever intelligent creature had been inhabiting the planet has just left, um, because the the wizards of Discworld are observing this I'm process. I'm a little confused. <laughs> um, hang on a moment. The, in Discworld, the planet is carried around on the backs of tortoises. Yeah. And uh, magic exists. Well, yeah. It has a colour, famously, yeah. octoin. That's right. And how can that possibly relate to real science in the real world? Well, that's... Uh, 
a very interesting point. Yeah, uh, when we first thought about doing Science of Disworld book, um, we were thinking of modelling it on the physics of Star Trek, which was the first book of this kind, which essentially, the, the idea there was to take things from the fictional uh, area and use them as a, a, a route into science which to some extent was closely related. So not exactly this is how you make a warp drive work, but here are things in physics that are similar to warp drives. And we thought we might be able to do this with this world. And we approached Terry about this and he said, I'd love to do it, but it won't work like that. It won't work because Discworld is flat, carried by four elephants on the back of a turtle that swims through space, and you can't explain that scientifically because it doesn't happen. Um, but more than that, yeah, Discworld runs on magic, and magic is things happening because people want them to happen. And it runs on narrative imperative, which is things happening because the structure of the story requires them to happen. Yes, yeah. the, the eighth son of the eighth son is going to be a wizard. Cannot be avoided. Even if the midwife made a mistake and the eighth son is actually female. And so the book Equal Rights examines this. But the, the whole thrust of the thing is that this, this young lady cannot avoid becoming a wizard because the power of story says she must. So we thought very hard about this. And the, the first thought was, oh, it won't work. Um, but after about six months, I was sitting with Jack Cohen in the Maths Institute common room and we got round to this topic again and suddenly I, I said, Jack, if there's no science in Discworld, we've got to get Terry to put some there. Because if he puts science into Discworld, then we can comment on the science. But because it's in Discworld, it'll be a legitimate part of the Discworld story. Mm -hmm. And we came up with a scenario, which is what we now use, which Terry somewhat modified. But essentially what happens is that the, the wizards of Discworld accidentally create the Roundworld project. And the Roundworld project is a sphere of magic, which is so strong that the interior has no magic in it. It's a sort of um, magical shield that keeps magic out. So the Discworld magic cannot leak into Roundworld. And Roundworld is variously the entire universe in which we human beings live, or the planet on which we live, or whichever version of those things is required for the narrative story. So what in fact happens is that Ponder's Stibbons, along with the other young wizards in the high-energy magic building are trying to split the thorn, the basic unit of magic. They are trying to split it. So this is analogous to splitting the atom mm. in the early days of, of um, atomic physics. And so they, they do this the way one should. They set up a magical reactor in the squash court in the same way that the first nuclear reactor was in the squash court of Chicago University. But the wizards being wizards insist on playing squash. Uh, they've never used the squash court before, but if somebody builds a reactor in it, they're going to use then the squash court. they must. Exactly, yes. they must. Um, and so this very delicate reactor has squash balls bouncing off it. Um, but nonetheless, it works fine. But then the, the react you get a runaway reaction and the entire magical content of the universe is about to be expressed simultaneously everywhere, which is going to destroy the universe. And so Hex, the university computer, steps in and initiates the Round World project, whose sole objective is to use up magic at a prodigious rate. And it has no other purpose at all. Purpose, 
narrative imperative, these are things that do not exist in round world. It turns out what does exist is rules. There, there, there are rules for what happens inside this magical shield. Nobody knows what the rules are, but they do, they discover there are rules. And Ponder Stibbons makes longer and longer lists of what he thinks the rules are. Um, and the wizards observe basically the unfolding of our universe within this little sphere. Because, of course, because there's no narrative imperative, the inside of this sphere does not know what size it ought to be. And since it doesn't know what size it ought to be, it can be any size you like. Uh, so it's sort of TARDIS-like, only more so. So uh, early on, the the wizards interfere a little with what's going on. It's difficult for them to interfere very directly, but they can um, they can tinker with what's going on. They have a virtually their suit, which lets them go inside. Interestingly, and... <laughs> they, they then become the gods of Randall, don't they? Yes, that's <laughs> right. And um, so the Arch-Chancellor of Unseen University pokes his finger into the round world project not realising what it is and is asked very politely could you please uh, extract your finger fairly quickly sir if you don't mind and he finally extracts it when a spark of light appears on his fingertip <laughs> so in the third Discworld science book um, at one point there's a conversation which goes something like but these people think that their world was created overnight by a, an old man with a beard. And one of the wizards points out it was. It was created by an old man. <laughs> That's <beard>. right. <laughs> but not quite in the way that the creatures think. Don't you find it a bit worrying the way in which the Unseen University is just like a real university? <laughs> it's, I mean, it is disturbingly like a real university in all sorts of ways. The main things missing from Unseen University at the moment is that things like the research assessment exercise have not yet caught up with it. So it functions like universities used to. Um, and in certain respects, like they still do. I mean, the fact that the, the senior wizards um, have no idea what the young wizards in the high-energy magic building are up to, and indeed are rather worried about it and think it's probably dangerous and this is something that shouldn't really meddle with. Now, this is exactly like what happens in real universities. Um, of course, the, the, the standing joke throughout we'll the entire... just in case <laughs> yeah. The standing joke throughout the entire series is, of course, that the wizards know that Discworld is real and Roundworld is, some, is a, a rather strange construct which they don't really understand and it's not exactly fictional but it's it's not as real as Discworld and of course it doesn't make as much sense as Discworld mm. um, point made by Mark Twain which is fiction has to be consistent but fact doesn't yeah. and we uh, we lean heavily on this running joke it's a wonderfully creative idea do you think that creativity is a core part of a mathematician's and a scientist's work I always emphasise just how creative mathematics is. I think with science it's clear that it's creative. With mathematics it's clear to anyone who understands what's going on that it's creative. But a lot of people don't realise it's creative. And I remember years ago I was visiting an Australian university and, and they just had a new um, vice-chancellor who wanted to merge the mathematics department with um, the business studies department on the grounds that mathematics was a branch of accountancy and was totally uncreative. And I was trying to explain to people that um, you know what you did at school isn't the whole subject. 
Um, in fact, it's much, much bigger than anybody thinks it is. Almost everything in our civilization is underpinned at some point by mathematics. Um, that there are more than 50,000 research mathematicians in the world all justifying their existence to their universities that between them they produce about a million pages per year of new mathematics, and I mean new mathematics. This is not just let's do another calculation like one of the old ones. This is different stuff. And about half of this is pure mathematics. It's directed at the internal structure of the subject, and about half of it is applications. It's applied mathematics. Mm. And there isn't a hard and fast barrier between those. They kind of merge into... I mean. Um, I worked with an American, Marty Golubitsky, and years ago um, he rather was rather bemused by the position in mathematics that he had in the sense of lo location with respect to pure and applied. And he, he, what he said was, my pure colleagues think I'm an applied mathematician and my applied colleagues think I'm a pure mathematician. Um, and the one good thing that's happened over the years is this middle ground has become bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more people are at least dabbling in it. So uh, the, the subjects have become much more unified than it used to be. Of course, you're actually a, is it an honorary doctorate at the Unseen University. Both you Jack, Jack Cohen and I yes. are un, yes, sorry, honorary doctorates, honorary wizards at Unseen University. The, the reason for this is that Warwick University, uh, showing remarkable foresight, decided to make Terry Pratchett and give him an honorary degree oh, here. Good. We were the first university to do this. I think he has four now, but we were the first. So how did you meet Terry Pratchett? Jack met Terry at science fiction conventions years ago before Terry was famous, when he was just a fan. Um, I was introduced to Terry by Jack at Novacon, which is the Birmingham Science Fiction Group's annual convention, in 1990. And it was basically Terry was passing through. And uh, all science fiction writers never forget that they were once fans. And they turn up at the conventions completely unannounced. You suddenly get this multi-million best-selling author wanders through the door. Um, not because he's on the programme, but because he wants to sit in on the discussions or sit in the bar and talk to people, mostly. So Terry turned up, so Jack dragged us off to lunch. And um, we got on pretty well. And for about the next... Uh, good many years after that we would just go and visit Terry if we were passing or he might come and have dinner somewhere um, and the idea of collaborating came pretty late in the whole process but uh, you know, I, I, I have always had a one finger in the science fiction pie and so has Jack Jack mostly as a fan, me as a somebody who wanted to write short stories mm. and over the years I've written about 20 short stories, nearly all for analogue. So what's, uh, are, there, are there more books in the pipeline for the Discworld, the Science we, of Discworld? The way the Science of Discworld worked was we did the first one and then we all agreed that it was such fun doing it that we could never match it again and therefore we wouldn't do any more. And then we started discussing what it would look like if we did do another one. And we did that for the second one and the same thing happened. And we came up with an idea for the third one and I think after the 18th attempt, Terry liked the idea, mm. so we agreed to do that one. And we are pretty firmly agreed now that we won't do a fourth book of that kind. Mm. Um, we want to stop that scenario before it gets too formulaic. Um, if we can think of something sufficiently different, I think all three of us would be very happy to collaborate again. 
Uh, but at the moment, we're rather short of ideas. We, I think we're kind of ideaed out on uh, Discworld and science-related things at the moment. Professor Ian Stewart, thank you very much for your time today.